Hello and welcome to this, the seventh episode in the second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I'm your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene, that never gets any easier to say, and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quality of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. So each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never ever charge for these podcasts, but we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And of course, the simplest way to go and support is just to buy yourself some tickets, whether that's expensive tickets in one of the big houses, cheaper tickets at one of the fringe venues. Maybe you can go over to one of the crowdsourcing websites like a Fundit or an Indiegogo, see if there are any projects over there you can support. And particularly at this time of year, if you're looking for last minute gifts for people, maybe go and buy a voucher for a theatre or buy actual tickets and bring someone out for a night out after Christmas. It'll be a fantastic Christmas present and it helps keep the whole machine ticking over. But of course there are a lot of ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or over a pint or around the Christmas table, maybe. Um, You can also share the link as a Facebook post, or you can retweet the link on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and of course, all these episodes are streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. Go back and listen to all the other episodes, both in this series and in the first. It helps push us up in the charts and all those great things. Leave us a review on iTunes if you can, or simply click to rate us on their five-star system. It's like a one-second deal, one click. It's a massive help for us, not a huge amount of time out of your day. You can, as ever, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And so that brings us to our guest this week, who is, of course, the brilliant Leon Bell, who has been a hugely important figure within the industry for a long time now. And apart from her own career as a designer, has been massively influential when it comes to supporting other artists. And of course, she was the spark that lit the fire that became the phenomenon that was Waking the Feminists. She's brilliant. It's a great chat. So let's get straight to it. Here it is, your Christmas special, the brilliant Leon Bell. The wonderful Liam Bell. How the hell are you? I'm all right. Thank you so much for coming on. No worries, thank um, you. As we do every episode, let us go back to the very beginning. Why and how did a career in theatre and the arts even occur to you? Um, at the very beginning, I suppose I was lucky enough to grow up in a house where um, creativity and being involved in making things and going to see things was completely normal. My okay. mother was a, a visual artist, so I was going to gallery openings from when I was a baby um, and making, you know, finger painting and whatever else. But I was also brought to theatre quite a bit. Um, but I suppose the moment that it really clicked for me was, um, I, I'm not sure which came first. One was doing a, a week-long work experience in team, as okay. it was then, which was great, just great. It ha- I happened to fall on the week where they did their last couple of days of rehearsal and their first couple of days out to schools so it was the perfect time to see all the madness and get swept <laughs> up in it um, and get sent out uh, into O'Connell Street or you know Marlborough, Marlborough Place 
with a napkin to try and find somebody in a Chinese restaurant who might be able to fold it like a lotus. <laughs> that was one of my tasks. Spectacular. So, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Sorry, I came away going, that's what I want to do. <laughs> a professional lotus folder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but then also around the same time, I got involved in uh, the youth theatre in our school, which was a little ad hoc because there weren't very many adults involved. It was kind of mostly the students doing really? it for themselves. Yeah, and then it was New Park okay. um, School. And there was one teacher in particular, Claire Corcoran, who was very uh, champion of the whole thing. But essentially, I think they purposefully kind of let people do it themselves. So they, we were directing, well, we one of the students was directing it. We were deciding what the plays were. We were putting them on. Like um, players for teenagers? Kind of, yeah, except extremely slowly and not having a clue what we were doing. So even I remember one, one we only I only did maybe two shows or three with them. But one time we were going like, what are we going to do? What's our next play? And one of the guys... Um, went off and started reading some plays and came in one day and was like I found it I found this great play it's French it's really funny and we were like brilliant and we looked and we were like yeah fine and we put it on and only later was like oh it's Moliere oh right fantastic <laughs> like we hadn't a clue but it was great yeah great and fun. in like so in a situation like that was it wonderful and democratic and everybody was great or was it full Lord of the Flies within six weeks it was a little Lord of the Flies no it was no it was um, I sort of I've, when people have asked me this I it's kind of like finding your tribe, finding your people, particularly in secondary school. Yeah. And the secondary school was quite big and I'd come from quite a small primary school, so I was a little inundated and at sea. Um, and it takes you a while to find the people that you want to be around. And that was, for me, the first moment where I went, oh, these are the people, okay. Even if they're mental and I have no idea what's going on, we're just having a crack. Well, I mean, I think at that stage in anybody's development, you've no idea who you yourself are yet so you, totally. again and it's kind of in finding those kindred spirits you go oh actually maybe yeah. if this is who I like then maybe that's who I am as well yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so so from that from our Lord of the Flies theatre collective <laughs> what, what happened next um, I applied to do the drama course the theatre studies course in Trinity and I think I, more than anybody else, was very surprised when they said yes, because I was kind of the quiet... When I did that drama, when I did the youth theatre, I was like behind the scenes. I was kind of the stage manager, essentially. I had no desire to be on stage. Um, I hadn't thought about any other world of it, whether it was design or anything. I was very happy doing the stage management, and that was what I kind of applied with. Okay. And when they said yes, I think everybody was kind of surprised, (laughs) including me. Um, but I was really excited. Um, so I did end up doing theatre studies uh, in Trinity. I started off with Italian and then ditched that after a year and got hugely sucked into players. Um, so I got into players from the get-go in first year and ended up being the tech manager when I was in third year, I think it was. Um, and players at the time, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time it was just a factory. Like yeah. There was... Two, at least two, if not three shows every single week going in. So there was a lunchtime, a tea time, and an evening show. Um, and every term, the committee would, committee would get together and say, we're never doing tea time shows again. This is too much. Okay, let's program another tea time show. <laughs> so we just run ourselves into the ground. Um, but again, it was like finding your people. And Players is great about you finding your people not just within the theatre studies course. You're finding people who are in, you know, 
doing philosophy or law or whatever else, people you would never normally have come across. Doing real courses. Doing real courses. <laughs> well, I don't know. People in philosophy might argue with that one. <laughs> Jane Coppinger would argue with that one, actually. Um, <coughs> and, um, yeah, so I really just put the head down and did lots and lots of... Like, for me, it was, it was fun. It was really enjoyable. And in retrospect, it was a huge learning. Mm. You know, your hand at a studio theatre, fully functioning, and told, right, that's yours now. Just do what you like. It's extraordinary. Imagine having it now. I know. <laughs> I know. I'd love to. Yeah, we should do it all over again. So talk to me about being tech manager there. And when does the design element start to come in for you? Um, yeah, I got into, from the very first involvement in players, I was a techie. I was the person doing lighting more than sound, really. Um, and I did some lighting designs through those years. And um, Eamon Fox, who is now tech manager in Drift, I think, was tech manager when I started in, in Players. And he basically turned to me on the very first day he met me and said, so when you're a tech manager, and I just was like, ha, 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 I don't know which end of the light, the light comes out, I don't know. Um, so he, he skilled me up and got me to the point of being tech manager. Um, which I realised is a ploy that you have to do when you're tech manager. Just pick on some first year and go, you'll be tech manager someday. Very Let clear me lines show of you. succession. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then in fourth year in theatre studies, I'd taken on a, a set design class um, and hadn't really done it before. And just, it, it was like opening another world to me. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. This is way more interesting than lighting, for okay. me anyway. Um so I got into that and did a few designs in fourth year in, in college. And then I suppose I kind of came out of college in this haze of uh, that weird year when you come out of college and you haven't a clue what you're doing. So I ended up working in AIB. Uh, in a very obvious, <laughs> very course, obvious move, yeah. My, uh, yeah, 20 hours a week, supposedly, in uh, the SSIA uh, oh, yes, the free money department. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Where my... I should, probably shouldn't say, oh no, I can totally say this. There was, um, I had no manager. This department had been made because the SSIAs had come online and it was a department that was getting all the applications so we had to sign off on them basically. But it was a rag bag of people that were just kind of, who's spare around the AIB? We'll just throw them in. So there was all these people who were like um, bank managers of small branches down the country and like me. And I was the only one who was kind of, I wouldn't say I'm in. I was in charge, but I was the one who was going right now. To now it's four o'clock. We put them in the envelopes. That wow. kind of thing. And because I had no manager, I used to just turn up in the morning, set them up, and going, leave, go off and do some other work, come back at lunch, have some of the subsidised lunch <laughs> in the canteen, and at the end of the week, go in and say, yeah, I did my twenty hours to somebody in a totally different department. That's glorious. So that was an amazing first year out of college because then I could do all the theatre stuff. Well, there you, you go. Know, so I got really sucked into doing stuff in project actually at that point. And at that stage, were you still moving back and forth between set design and lighting design? or No, at that point I was really... Set design had kind of taken over. And do you think you're kind of the, the family background of visual arts is was part of the influence in that yeah. or just that it feels like a better fit for you or what? Yeah, I've always liked the... It's a combination for me of the visuals and, you know, textures and colour, but then the practicality of people having to be in it and what it means in terms of enhancing the space or creating some kind of a world that people live in. And I'm personally, I'm not really that interested and I have never really made set designs that look like 
an interior somewhere. You yeah. know, I'm not like into the, okay, it's a kitchen and there's a, there's a sink, sink and there's a door over there and there's a window. Like they've never interested me, but I like these strange, um, abstract, invented spaces that mm -hmm. people then have to inhabit. So, and yeah, my dad's a surveyor. So I always wondered whether that was like a crossover between my mother being a visual artist and my dad being, I mean, I'm sure I've got my own ideas in there as well, somewhere. But whether that's a kind of a, two sides of my brain. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And then in terms of leaving those designs a little bit more open, in that, as you say, it's not prescriptive, this is the kitchen table with the four chairs. Yeah. Is that, does that open up, does it open up more to collaboration, both with actors and directors and then lighting people around it as well is that part of the idea behind it i think so i think it the work i've tended to work on is um usually devised or uh dance sort of work so you're not coming in with a script sure going right this is what we have to make something for you're coming in with a set of ideas or a set of uh sort of aspirations and textures and you're creating something together although i do i don't it's funny, like we talk about collaboration, like I'm, I am always working with somebody who's got a very clear idea of what they want to do. And I'm adding to that. I'm not the person coming along going, I, you know, I have a great idea. Let's yeah. do it together. So there is collaboration, but it's very much led. Collaboration, okay. If that makes sense. In terms of the, there's a specific brief that you need to come and engage with. Um, it changes. It depends on the person that you're yeah. doing it with. Um, but I suppose I'm always rowing in behind somebody else's idea uh -huh, yeah. rather than coming up with it and myself. Do, do you prefer to be given a huge amount of scope or do you prefer someone with very concrete ideas and, and like you say, starts, they have an idea in themselves oh. of the world and the textures and the colours? I don't know, it's quite different. Um, a bit of both. A bit of both at different times, I think. Right. Like you, it's good at the start to sort of be given enough free reign for you to go off and come back with sort of strange ideas and things that they would never have thought of yeah. and just things that are, are associative shapes or um, relationships on the stage but I do really appreciate when somebody's clear even if they go you know that's definitely not what I want <laughs> but there's something in there that you know I it's when people sort of go yeah okay um yeah okay to everything yeah and you just they go I don't I don't have any rules here I don't yeah. have any boundaries I can just go off in any direction which makes me anxious. Right. <laughs> Maybe I'm like a toddler. <laughs> I you need, need structure I need in the structure. play. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it is, it's really different. Every single relationship you have with somebody, every single um, collaboration you do, they're quite different. So say working with Annie Ryan is going to be really different to working with Louise White or it's going to be different to working with, I, I was just talking to Emily Avian who does aerial performance. Yes. Like every, you've just got really different relationships. So talk to me a bit about those early days in the project then. How it seems to me that anyone who has kind of had formative time in the project just kind of feel, speaks about it like it was the most exciting place to be. There's incredible energy in the building. Mm. I mean, going stretching right the way back through decades. Yeah. Um. What was that time like for you? It was. I again, in retrospect, it was kind of amazing that we even got to do what we got to do. So it was the one year between finishing in Trinity and before I went and did a masters. And um, Kathy McArdle was the director of project at the time, and she firstly put me in touch with somebody uh, an american uh, guy called chris white and sh he and i and a few other people like jen coppinger and um, michelle brown who's now a visual artist um, and an italian woman whose name i can never remember which is terrible anyway the, the five of us became a, a 
collective group and we called ourselves 10 elephants because we had no other ideas of what to call ourselves and Kathy gave us the cube so we were and the project new project building had only just opened so I think we were the first um show made for the cube wow in the cube um, and she gave it to us and we had like we hadn't a clue again it was that sort of players well let's just do it we didn't know anything about producing or money or any of that sort of stuff um, but she also, we had said um, in our total naivety, well, you know, we're doing the show in the cube, but let's do something else as well, just to kind of, while we have the space. Right. So let's put on 10 lunchtime events. I think it was one a week for 10 weeks and that we would do five or six of them and we'd get four or five other people to do the other ones and they'd just be random things. So we had to come up with all these mad ideas. And they were, that was actually, the show itself, grand, I can't say it was particularly brilliant, but the, the coming up with these really strange little mini performances upstairs in the bar was brilliant, it was a lot of fun, and it was a real collaboration, and I think showed things like Michelle Brown, who hadn't at that time gone back to art college, like it, we could start to see everybody was going in slightly different directions, which was great and really exciting. So speaking of going in different directions, you had the idea then to go and do the masters. Yeah. What? Tell us a bit about that process then. Yeah. Well, that was around that same time. A friend of mine at the time had applied to uh, Central Saint Martins in London, and uh, again, in my naivety, I hadn't a clue. I'd never heard of Central Saint Martins, and he just told me, "Oh, look, I've applied for this, and it's a great masters. It looks really fun. You also get to do one semester or one term of it in a different country." And I was like, that sounds great, <laughs> and applied to that. Um, just in that lovely obliviousness of being, whatever, 21. Yeah. So I applied and, to my surprise, got in and ended up then moving to London for the year um, to do this MA in scenography, it was called at the time. And the part of that year, uh, that, so there was a year in London and then there was about four months, I think, in Seville I spent. Uh, that must have been terrible. It was very hard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what was... What was the process of the year like? I mean, we've talked on the podcast before an awful lot with actors and talk about drama, drama school and actor training and stuff. How does one go about training set designers? Well, this was, it's a funny degree. It doesn't really exist anymore, that Masters. And it was slightly misnamed. It's called scenography. But actually what it was, um, I suppose, was a bit more like um, the crossover of live art, performance art, um, installation and um, time-based art so all of these very in-between it was at a very in-between point between different disciplines I think and the people who were on the course so I was a set designer I think there was one there were two other set designers that I remember and more or less everybody else came from very different backgrounds so there was choreographers and um, there were film and tv designers uh, there were visual artists I can't even remember. There was about 25 of us, I think, and from really all over the world. Mm -hmm. And we were all bunged together and um, it was about making work, like it was about making design or visual-led work, um, whether you're in it or whether you're just making some kind of installation or whatever. Um, and it was, for me, it was totally mind-blowing because yeah. I'd done the theatre that we made up, you know, the stuff that we did in Players that we invented as we went along. And then this was being given a whole other raft of um, possibilities and influences. So our teachers were sort of saying, 
you know, go off and write or do something about this, but look at video game, you know, this video game, this comic book, this film, this radio program, this book, finally a book, <laughs> uh, you know, and it suddenly made me realize, God, you can just pick stuff from anywhere. Yeah. Like you can now, I think my, the place that I get the best inspiration or the most inspiration is always in visual art. Like right. I tend not to take inspiration from other set designers. I tend to go and look at uh, looking galleries right. and look at visual art online and so on. So it was a real moment of just going, oh, the world is way, way bigger than I thought it was. Um, and I suppose it created a whole different dynamic of collaboration as well. For me. Well, and I, that's one of the key things for me in any kind of a, a training process. It's like the Spice Girls effect of you don't just pick the five best singers. You need a ginger spice, a sporty spice and a scary spice. So that thing of, you know, I say choreographers and filmmakers and yeah. stuff come together. You with the set design background, that it's almost that... That often I find that they can kind of invigorate in ways that you didn't even oh, expect. Completely. There's a whole new vocabulary yeah, around completely. making stuff. And just different ways of looking at things. And yeah, you have to change the way you speak. You can't rely on the easy kind of mm. flippant, you know, the way we do that thing. Yeah. You know, you have to describe your ideas and describe your influences in a different way. And they have to do the same with you. And sometimes I think in trying to articulate something for someone else, you actually are able to articulate exactly. it for yourself better yeah, and exactly. clearer. Yeah. So it was an amazing year. And it was, again, a lot of it was just being thrown in to do project after project after project, being set these strange little uh, things that we had to go off and do together or on our own. And um, it was it was great. And it was a really intense year. And then I kind of got spat back out of it at the other end because it was only a year, yeah. a year and a bit. Um, and came back to Dublin quite quickly. And... The rest of it's all been a blur. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I ended up, I suppose, going quite quickly back into theatre. Well, having, I mean, because, you know, at a young age, being over in London, which is a, you know, a big bustling city great. compared to Dublin, yeah. and then also, I guess, the time in, in Seville as well. Mm. How formative was that in terms of, just in London, there are more art galleries on your doorstep to go and look yeah. at this. There's, a, there's a, I guess, greater diversity in the kind of art you can engage with. And there's also... I suppose growing, having grown up in Dublin and, you know, gone to school in Dublin and you do, it is a little claustrophobic sometimes. And London for me was just this thing of going, oh, I can do anything I want. <laughs> Nobody's going to say anything. I'm not going to, you know, I can wear the weirdest clothes that I can think of and walk down the street and I won't bump into somebody I know. <laughs> and that was really liberating. You know, I loved London and I was always a little bit sorry that I left it, although I wouldn't have wanted to live there impoverished because yeah. I think it's a very tough town. Um, but I absolutely loved it. And just the, again, I, I got really into this idea that the stuff that you find by accident is really inspiring. Like that's something that I always fall back on. The stuff that I happen across that gives me a little bit of a spark when I've got a, another idea in my head. That's the stuff that I keep, yeah. if that makes sense. So London was a great, amazing place for wandering around, going to odd, unexpected events and exhibitions and just coming across things and knitting it all together in my mind. Um, yeah, so I've kind of taken that away, I suppose, from that is that idea of just slight enjoying the randomness of it. Talk to me then about the kind of parallel track 
to your career in terms of arts management and stuff when does that start to come in and is it effectively that just you had developed those skills so finely in AIB and the SSIA <laughs> that you, <laughs> that you thought it would be a shame to waste them <laughs> Um, well, when you put it like that, um, no, I think it was when, so I came back to Dublin, there was a few messy years where I lived in France for a while and I worked on a couple of big, I came back to Ireland and worked on some big like Hollywoody films in doing costume, just those years where you're still trying to work out what you're yeah. doing. Um, and then when I started getting back into theatre, well actually started designing for dance again and um, realised very quickly that you just can't make a living. Um, or at least it, with the work that I was interested in, I couldn't make a living. So doing the kind of admin on the side jobs was very useful. Mm-hmm. So um, being asked to go into, I don't know, the Theatre Institute, Theatre Shop, as it was back in the day, to do, help them out with their conference or, you know, little bits and bobs of work. And over the years, that slowly grew. And obviously my skills grew mm. um, to the point where I think in the last few years, it's tended to be the predominant thing, which I'm now trying and somehow to counterbalance a little bit but I do I try to keep a balance of the two because anytime I've gone and just done one I think I go a little bit mad I think my brain does need a little bit of the creative side yeah um but also needs a bit of the structure and spreadsheets and that kind of thing (laughs) because what's interesting to me is that's an area of the business that even though I've been producing over the last while and whatever else I that's the bit that I find the hardest and in the way that we've had you know, guests on before, actors who've come out, come out of drama school in the last kind of five or six years, you know, post-crash, mm. that they needed to find that additional skill set of writing their own work or self-producing or finding a way to make it happen. Mm. Um, and so other people look at them and go, oh, that's the way to do it. But sure, it's, it's our way to do it, but not everyone has that skill set. Yeah. How quickly did you find that Excel spreadsheets and, and time that management actually suited you? Yeah. Um, pretty quickly I've always been very organized you know um so it's it was quite normal for me and that's just yeah I've always enjoyed it I've always enjoyed um being in situations where I get to meet new people as well um so one of the things that happened that I forgot to mention in while well, the time I was in Trinity I got really involved in what the was then the Pan Pan Dublin International Theatre Symposium their first iteration of that happened at the Christmas or the January of my first year of college right. and I volunteered for that and then I worked on every single one of those since and for me that was an amazing uh, experience of just being thrown again into a group of people from all over the world um, all kind of coming together everything was being it was a little bit messy in the first couple of years but getting to meet all these people and share ideas I thought was really interesting so for me then years later to be working on things like, I don't know, the IETM international networking uh, uh, meeting that came here. So there was about five, 500 people here in Dublin that I helped organize or all the conferences that I worked on with ITI. Like it's all echoes of that, of just also getting to meet people. Yeah. I find that really interesting. So it's it's not just the admin, it's not just the kind of spreadsheet stuff. It's about the, the people as well behind it. Do you find that the two kind of parallel tracks speak to each other that you're picking up stuff in one that adds to the other to a degree yeah although I've come to realize in the last few years that there's literally a different way of thinking when you're being creative to when you're doing the admin work okay and it takes time to let your brain settle back into being creative 
And I think in the last few years in particular, I just haven't had that time yeah. at all. So it's been, I designed one show this year, which was Louise White's um, uh, This is the Funeral of Your Life. And last year I didn't design any. And I just couldn't, like my brain wouldn't, didn't have the space to be able to do that shift. So I've realized that there is time needed and there's kind of dedicated space needed to to do one and the other so um one of the things i'm trying to do is create ways of giving myself those that space so i'm going in january and february this year i've got or next year i've got a residency in the cultural center in paris Fantastic. which will be the first time i think since college where i'm giving myself a two-month creative brain holiday not holiday that's a terrible word this is and, and yeah that's the other thing I find myself doing is that I go well the work is the admin stuff and the creative stuff is the fun stuff yeah like that's the stuff I do in the breaks when yeah and that I have to really catch myself out yeah. and stop myself doing because it's not just the fun stuff just because you enjoy it doesn't mean it's <laughs> doesn't mean it's not work stuff. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and I should give it as equal value as the other anyway I just caught myself on that one that's a good one um <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about you because you're talking about you know trying to find that time and space for yourself but you've also been fairly instrumental in finding ways to achieve that space and time for other artists uh, quite selflessly and um, so talk to me a bit about your path through those kind of artist development programs and I guess particularly taking it back to the fringe and uh, a certain little project called show and a bag which I haven't <laughs> had a little bit of experience with well I think um the fact that I've been interested in those sort of artist development programs probably stems from the fact that I in some way get a sense of what it's like to yeah. be an artist as well. You know, there is this horrible perceived divide between the, the management and the artists, which I in a funny way straddle. And I think people find that a little odd, but it makes me realize actually that there isn't that big a difference between us. Yeah. But it does just give me a little bit more insight into both into both areas. Um, so things like more recently, I developed a, a, a program called Gap Days that I did with Mermaid Art Centre. And that came out of me going, God, I would just love a day to put everything else aside and just go back to maybe the notebooks that I've been keeping that I just put on a shelf and never look at again and just indulge in that again. And I never have that day. And then we, we came up with this idea of essentially paying artists for a day of their time and giving them a day in a, a local art centre to do whatever it is they needed to do. Just take a day out of all the madness because we're all doing so many things yeah. and so many people are doing, you know, jobs on top of like outside of theatre. Mm. People are, you know, minding children, minding parents, minding partners, whatever is going on in their lives. This was like a little, trying to crack that a little and make a little bit of a gap. Um, so that purely came out of my own this is what I want for me wouldn't it be great if I could do it for everybody and then of course did it for everybody and not for me but anyway <laughs> but yeah I think it's I think it's to do with um, having a little bit of an insight of what it's like um, and knowing that people make better work when they're supported well absolutely and it's funny because I remember being part of the Next Stage programme at the festival and just the, the absolute luxury of taking that time, a chunk of time, to focus exclusively. And I guess, I don't want to say selfishly, but just that you can park everything else for mm. and not worry about the rent and the kids and the whatever else. You just go, okay, I'm just going to focus on this. And the 
it's like a shot of steroids totally. artistically. Yeah. Um, it's so valuable. And I think sometimes we can be a bit, we can feel a bit guilty about that going, oh, well, Absolutely. you know, how do, can I really say I deserve to spend this time focused? Exactly. Is it too and that's indulgent? going back to the thing of, is it work or is it fun? Yeah. You know, and is, are you indulging yourself by doing this? You know, because I'm not, because it's not generating money. Yeah. Is it then just a kind of a hobby? Which really annoys me because I feel it, you know, it's in my own head. So it really annoys me. Um, but things like going down to, uh, I'm sure you've been down to the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Anna Eric, like these kind of places, which are like that, that is, it's such a luxury. It's an amazing house in a beautiful location. You're given an extraordinary room, you know, sort of period details everywhere. And they cook your dinner for you and you don't have to go out and buy the milk for the morning. And you come away feeling so minded mm. and I do think people feel a little, can feel a little guilty of just that, you know, what did I do with my week? Yeah. Uh, or at least I think at the start of the week, people feel worried about it by the end of the week. They're just like, that was amazing. Um, but those, I, I really believe in the value of supporting people and particularly because people are having, often having a really hard time. Mm. So to give such a tiny little thing such as a gap day, like it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little offer. Like it was 200 euros for the day, I think that was it. And they got their lunch for free. And it's, so it's a tiny offer, but just that gives people enough, um, a bit of a boost, I suppose, to know that somebody valued, values well, exactly. their work. Yeah, and there's a validation in it, just and a reminder that it's okay. You, like you're on the right path. This, yeah, the, your work yeah, is your valued. Your work is valid, yeah. yeah. And I suppose that the tricky thing is the gap between all these artist development programs and then those people getting to make work. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing. I, you know, that's, I don't think that's completely working. At the Is moment. that next on your list to fix? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Miracles might take no. a little longer. No. Um, talk to me a bit about your time at the fringe. Uh, Cause you were program manager here. Yeah. Uh, for three festivals. Wow. And it was, I think, Again, in my naivety, I looked at the job application when it came up and I was like, what is that job anyway? I don't really get it. And I read down the application and kind of went, yeah, I could do that. Oh, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. Maybe I should just apply for it. So I applied and I got it. And it was also the first year Rasha Goen was the yeah. director. So it was a great time to start because we were both newbies. Um, and the role at that time was nine months out of the year. So I was working from, I think, February to October or something like yeah. that. And again, in my naivety, I thought, oh, great. Well, that means on the side, I'll be able to do a couple of designs a year. Um, and then realized that those three months were taken up with recovering <laughs> <laughs> from the other nine months. Um, but it was great. It was a real, uh, again, down to how to support artists, how to talk to artists, how to help them critique their own work. Um, and then all the practical, like the stuff I love, which is all about systems and, you know, the application systems and rejigging those. And yeah, I loved, I really enjoyed all of that. But after three years, I think the fringe, the fringe in particular, because it's new people coming all the time with yeah. new ideas and they're filled with enthusiasm. And after three years, I was like, oh, hang on, this is the same. It's the same structure every year. It's just new people coming into it. Mm. So in March, you know, I'd look at my watch and be like, oh, it's March. We do the things we do in March, you know. And after three years of that, I found, felt myself getting a little bored um, and also was, I think, frustrated creatively because I wasn't doing anything sure. creative. So that 
meant that I left after three years and um, yeah, started going back into doing some designs. Um, and in keeping that kind of artist development stuff going, also the the, the Pan Pan mentorship as well yeah. is, is your baby too. Yeah, yeah, which has literally just started yesterday again, the fifth fifth iteration of it. It feels like that's a combination of a lot of the different elements that we've talked about so far in terms of its artist support, there's an international dimension, it's yeah. back to the roots with Pan Pan. Absolutely, and it does come out of, like the reason that... Um, it, it came about in the first place is that it's sort of taking a bit of the ethos of the early symposiums mm. um, where they were kind of like festivals but they were one of the big things was about artists meeting each other and going to each other's workshops and you know so you get a, a company from Poland and a company from Belgium who if they were in a festival they'd just come along do their show maybe meet each other in the bar and that's it and go home whereas in the symposium they'd go to each other's workshops they might go and see some work in progress and they'd actually get to interact. And in the middle of all that, there'd be all these Irish artists given an opportunity to do all of this stuff with all these amazing international companies. Um, so the mentorship is kind of taking a tiny little element of that and taking, bringing it on. Um, and again, it's a, kind of in a similar way to the gap days. I, I'm a little wary of development programs that are too, um, uh, what's the word? that they tell you what you need to do or that you have to have a certain outcome. Right, okay. Um, and they work for some people, but I also feel like s- most people know what they need. <laughs> you know, they <laughs> they need to just do the work. Yeah. They need some time and space to do the work. So the mentorship is very much like you get a bit of cash to buy your own time. You go off and do whatever it is you need to do. If that's reading, if it's jumping around a room, whatever it is. Um, and you've got somebody to talk to in the shape of the mentor. And you've got a bit of money to go and travel and see some work. That's the other sort of bonus that they yeah. get. But the, I'm not there coming in and talking to them and going, so how's it going? And, you know, would you like to show something at the end? There is a symposium day, but often yeah. people just talk about what they've been doing yeah. rather than showing it. So, again, I don't want it to be too prescriptive because yeah. the point is it's for them to develop an idea. Um, yeah, so I suppose trusting the artist is really important. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, would you take me back a couple of years to the idea of fuck it press sound <laughs> um, and the birth of what became the incredible wake of the feminist movement uh, yeah um how do i tell the story without saying it in the same way that i always say it <laughs> once upon a time no um it was around the time so i'd done the the next stage you just talked about doing the next stage i'd done the next stage that year which was 2015 and as you know, like it's an amazing couple of weeks, three weeks. Um, it's absolutely exhausting. Yeah, it's full like, on. In a way that everyone tells you it's going to be exhausting and you see people who are going through it and they're exhausted and then you do it and you're like, oh Jesus, I didn't understand that I could get this tired. Yeah. Um, and also came to the end of it and was going like, why am I doing this? Who actually wants to make theatre? Are we all absolutely mental? This is so stupid. Like I was in a bit of a nihilistic um moment and did have that thought of well i'm quite happy to go back to the south of france and work in a bar like fuck it yeah you know if this all collapses i really don't care so i was in a bit of a like i just don't care mood and um it was only about two weeks or so i think after the next stage if i'm right in thinking about it or a couple anyway yeah, it sounds about right um and the abbey uh put out their program online and i just happened to be I had a studio at the time I just happened to be online and 
yeah just the, the name started jumping out and particularly for me the directors I was like oh there's not many women directors and just did a little tot up and got a little annoyed and then was like oh there's really not very many writers so I did another little tot up and just fired off that thing the first thing on Facebook was really like am I right this is the way I, am I missing something yeah here? am I missing something yeah and like just fired it off but then the amount of response I got on that really kind of shook not shook me but made me go oh oh yeah actually this is bullshit <laughs> <laughs> I was right you know it wasn't it was a kind of an automatic rolling my eyes response but then just to get the the wave of response on that that made me go oh yeah hang on this is totally wrong so then from then on I was a bit more I suppose considered in my posts <laughs> well Ish. yeah no but that's yeah I mean look it's, it's that it's that for me thing of how you go and how you pitch things in terms of you know achieving the goals and stuff but it's how quickly did you realize how big it was or how big it was to become um within a few days i'd say i mean that was a thursday so the thursday it was like a thursday afternoon that i saw the program released and i by sunday i remember sunday i was kind of stuck in the house and i had to leave the house at one point to go and get some food and I bumped into Philly McMahon yeah. in our local cafe and he was like, Jesus, that stuff online is a bit mad. And I was like, yeah, I know. And then went back and there was, you know, 20 other messages going on. But then by, like definitely by Sunday evening, there was conversations starting to happen on the phone with a few people about like, what are we going to do now? Um, I think either Monday or Tuesday, I had written to the Abbey board saying, we, whoever we are, yeah. need to have a... a use the space and have a public meeting um, and by the following Thursday was the first time a group of us got together in a room um, and that was everybody like that was a, amazing I kind of wish we'd taken a photograph on the day I think we tried to and it might have been deleted or something I can't remember anyway it was everyone from like Jane and Siobhan from ITI and um, Kean O'Brien Lynn Parker uh, oh god there was loads I won't go through yeah. the list but there was just all these people who I had written to going what are we gonna do like in my panic and, and we got together and started planning what the actual event was going to be and was it just a case that the the program itself was the straw that broke the camel's back or that for some reason it was no longer enough to go ah oh, well them's the breaks <laughs> but but um but that was that, but that shift from Asher, isn't this how it always is to know what are we going to do to change it? Was, yeah. was that the big shift? I think there was, it was a big confluence of different things that happened. So there was the program itself. There was the fact that it was Felix's last program. Yeah. So there were people who, who I think normally would have felt a bit more careful about saying something because yes. they'd be afraid of damaging their relationship with the Abbey. Of course, yeah. Realised actually, I don't mind anymore saying something. Yeah. The new directors, even though they'd been chosen at that point, they hadn't come on board and most people didn't know who they were. So they were a bit of an unknown quantity. So there wasn't the kind of fear of, you know, I know that person, I know what they're like. So they were, you know, I think people felt a little freer in that as well. The fact that Fiat went off on holidays very quickly afterwards and left this, I think it was a five day period where there was nobody in the Abbey who could respond. So the Abbey was silent, which meant that there was loads of people starting to talk and then more people watching and going, oh, she said something now. Oh, he said something now. Oh, I feel comfortable now. I can yeah. say something. So there was this five days of allowing the maybe more nervous people to come forward. And um, the fact that it was going into the centenary year, so obviously symbolically it was a really yeah. big moment. 
So there was all these things crisscrossing. And I do think the, you know, the equality, marriage equality referendum had given certainly a group of people younger than me, a whole stratum of people younger than me who had their first big social win, you know, had gone, we wanted to change something about our society and we did it and had this feeling of, right, what's next? What can we take on next? So there was, there was all of these things that all came together. And then there was a lot of hard work. And there was, you know, I, luckily I was free for those few weeks. I didn't have that much work going on. So I was happy to kind of throw myself into it. Um, But it was, again, it was just after the festivals, people had a bit more free time. So there was all these people like, who normally would be up to their eyes, like Anne Clark and stuff, who were able to just go, yeah, okay, let's do it. It's incredible. How how early on, if at all, did you have an idea of what you wanted to achieve out of it? Because I remember kind of, like I remember being like massively enthusiastic and supportive and whatever, I was coming to some of the meetings. The, the big public ones in the Abbey but by the same token having that cynical head on me kind of going yeah well this is all well and good to talk about what, what, how, what, what are you ever going to do how could you ever achieve anything with this and then at the end you issued your incredible checklist that like I'm like, oh just exactly those things <laughs> okay there yeah. it is in black and white like in that first so the week between that first meeting so the first post was on the Thursday the first meeting of this group of people was the following Thursday and the third Thursday was the Abbey event like that that's quickly. how fast that was. Yeah. Jesus. Like it was absolutely bonkers. So in that week between the first time we met and the Abbey event, um, there was a, I can't remember how many times we met, physically met together, maybe three or four times. But one of them was, again, this big group of kind of who's, who's here, who can come along, great. Um, and we all split up around, we were meeting in Rough Magic's offices and we all split up around the building and we're like, right, we have to make a, not a manifesto but like we have to you know decide what are the things we want so everyone broke up into groups and kind of went off and thought about it in their groups and came back together and came up with those three um campaign objectives which i read out on the the stage of the abbey and off the top of my head i probably can't remember it but um it was like equal uh, opportunity and advancement for women artists uh equal pay and something else very important that I've forgotten the one in the middle um but it was quite clear I think yeah it was amazing it was an amazing time because there was an absolute lack of ego that was the thing that was the most extraordinary you know like we're all quite collegiate and we're all quite we know each other and we work collaboratively collaboratively because that's the way that our work exists but there's always a bit of ego in there and there's always somebody leading the charge and in this group, it was like everybody just went, this is more important. This is bigger than us. Yeah. Like, let's not get fussy. So everyone just pitched in and worked to their absolute capacity. Like for that to happen in a week is just it's insane. Crazy. It couldn't yeah. have happened any other way yeah. without that kind of selflessness. Um, but there was also all these people who obviously had been thinking about stuff for a long time. So it wasn't like we were coming along with an bl- empty slate going, oh, God, what are we going to do? There were people who were able to come along and say, you know, equal pay. That's really important. You know, they yeah. were just, yeah, there were people waiting in the wings with a lot of great ideas. Yeah, I, it's, and like, like I'm, I was amazed by how 
clear and concise the kind of the the objectives at the end were and because I was going you know how would this ever be measurable because you could just fudge it and oh we'll balance that in next year's program but there was really concrete tangible yeah. aims and goals and you go oh we can hold people to account and, yeah, we, can, yeah, exactly. and we can do better yeah uh, which was like a remarkable thing to see yeah at this remove are we two and a bit years on it is what do we know December so yeah two years and two months ish how do you feel things stand now um I think uh, I do think there's been a sea change in among the community in many ways. Like, I do think, for a start, the fact that it's just absolutely normal to talk about it, yeah. you know, is amazing. And that people do feel more comfortable, I think, to point it out and um, point out any kind of imbalance when they see it is also amazing. Um, and all of our major theatre organisations, if they haven't already, all of them are putting policies in place. Um, and are actively working on them, not just sort of putting in something that sits on a shelf in yeah. the plan anyway. Um, so it ha- like things have changed and there were lots of other sort of side shoots of things that happened. So obviously we had to focus on theatre or we decided to focus on theatre because that was what we knew and that's what we felt we could change. But there's lots of other little tangents that went off um, that nobody, I was certainly no, never in control of any of all this. There was just people going, I want to do this in this direction. And we'd go, great, go and do that. Yeah. So um, things like, for example, there was Awaken the Feminist Northern Ireland group that got set up that have been doing a huge amount of work up there, particularly around um, uh, abuse and, and uh, abuse of power, I suppose, and uh, sexual harassment. Um, and they've managed to get a, an agent who's based up in the north um, banned, essentially, yeah. for the next 10 years because of what he's been doing to people he's been working with. Um, then there was groups like the MAMS, Mothers of Irish yes. Makers. So, again, it was a tangent to what we were doing, but it was a really important conversation. And they decided they wanted to pick it up and run with it. So they're, they're still meeting, as far mm. as I know. And then things like um, there's a group of composers and musicians who call them, I think now they're calling them themselves sounding the feminists, but it's about trying to get better representation of women in places like the National Concert Hall. Right. Um, and just recently, Una Mullally, the journalist, organised a first meeting of Waking the Media, she called it. Uh, so again, journalists and uh, wor- women working across the media coming together, which they don't often do, um, and starting to talk about the things that are happening for them and what they can do about it. So it all keeps rippling on. There's also uh, one of the things that I'm interested to see how it happens next year uh, is 2018 is the anniversary for uh, women getting the right to vote in Ireland. Okay. Well, certain I think it's women over 30 who had land got the right to vote. So the certain, right kind of woman. The right kind of woman, yeah, exactly. Um, but at least they got something. Uh, but as... I suppose tied in with that, we had a meeting with the last Minister of the Arts, Heather Humphreys, um, and talked to her about the idea of asking all the national cultural institutions to have gender policy in place by next year as a kind of a symbolic moment, I suppose. And she um, said yes, and she went off and she said that. And she and we worked on a a workshop with all of those uh, national cultural institutions. So that's everything from like IMA the National Gallery, the National Library, the National Concert Hall, the Crawford, all the sort of big, mm. the, the cultural organisations that shape what Irish culture is, basically. Um, and so now they are all supposedly working on their 
uh, policies for next year. So we just have to follow it up and make sure they're actually doing it. Um, and then as you look forward, what I mean, do you think it's already been a success and we've won or do you think there's still a road to go and what would you like to see down the road? Oh yeah, I mean there's definitely, it's an extraordinary success. Um, it's a small step <laughs> in the major <laughs> marathon, unfortunately. <laughs> but it, yeah, I mean it's gobsmacking what has happened. Um, you know, it, just being able to rewind two years and think about how our brains were different yeah. like how my brain was different i had to relearn certain ways of thinking over the last couple of years because i you know i am as maybe not as biased as other people i'd like to think yeah. but uh it, you know when you talk about unconscious bias that's inside of all of us of so it's about learning how to spot it and work around it um but uh, yeah, of course, there's loads of things to be fixed. Um, and I suppose at the moment, the big thing uh, that's coming out is all about sort of dignity in workplace mm-hmm. and sexual harassment and uh, bullying and so on. And that's triggered, obviously, by the Weinstein case in America. But I think in Ireland is tied up as well with waking the feminists and and a, a newfound sense of um, being able to speak up about things which was, you know, Grace Dias, who was the woman who spoke up in the first instance in Ireland. Um, I, I'm enormously proud of what she did because she has, and I know it hasn't been easy for her. Of course. Her. I think we're all quite proud. I think, we're all, I think a lot of us are very grateful as oh, well. Absolutely. You can tell me taking a bullet for the team. You know? Yeah, yeah. And one thing that really struck me, so I worked in the Gate Bar um, for on and off for about eight years. Um, and while nothing ever happened to me directly I suppose there was an atmosphere that we were all very aware of and we all talked about um, and so when the article came out in the Irish Times where there was all the women who worked in the office talking about experiences they had um, which echoed things that I'd heard over the years I remember reading it and later in that day just realising oh my god I feel I who have like not experienced this I feel such relief because I realized that I had somehow been carrying this around yeah. and holding it and pretending it didn't exist or having this strange dissonance of what I felt was right and what I felt was wrong. And something that was wrong, I was trying to make it feel like it was okay yeah. for all those years. And that was me who you know, was at a very much arm's length from all of this. But for anybody who was walking around experiencing that and trying to reconcile it with their everyday living i imagine there was a moment of feeling slightly terrified but also relieved that it was just out there so just for that like grace is amazing not bad at all it's <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic thing and look and it, it is it's it takes a real leadership and it's people like yeah. you and people like grace and many many others who, who wrote in and takes opinion. a huge amount of support yeah. i mean that's the other thing like you know waking the feminists was never just me and could never ever have just been <laughs> me and i never wanted it to be you know yeah. there's a there's a huge cohort of people but the same with grace like and you'll read that in her first uh, one of the first blogs she she wrote about this she knew she needed a lot of support and a lot of advice and she she contacted lots of different people and got them around her to be able to then finally make the step and come out publicly. So it's, it's 
uh, it's terrifying, but you really do need to have your people around you. Well, fingers crossed through the great work of so many great women. We have, uh, and, oh, men. and men too, <laughs> we have opened the floodgates and, uh, and that the, the winds of change are, are, yeah. are sweeping through, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, Liam, that was a fantastic chat. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm delighted to have had you on. Um, you're the best. Thank you Great, so much. Thanks. <laughs> So there you have it, the great Leon Bell. Fantastic to have the chats with her and in particular to spend so much time talking about her own career and practice as a designer. I think in many ways, Leon has become so synonymous with assisting and facilitating other artists that it was great to turn the spotlight back on her for a while. She's fantastic and I'm delighted to have her here for the Christmas special. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of all the things that are going on in Irish theatre around the country. So at the Abbey Theatre, they have Let the Right One In and they called her Vivaldi. The gate continues with the red shoes. At the Gaiety, of course, they have their panto there, Rapunzel. At the board, gosh, it's the sound of music starring the great Lucy O'Byrne. Um, the new theatre, I think, is dark over the Christmas, but we'll have uh, Save and Quit coming up. At the Civic in Tala, they have the Three Musketeers. Um, the Viking in Clontarf has a Christmas carol, and that will be followed by Typhoid Mary. Um, Bewley's coming up in the new year, we'll have All Honey. Um, at Smock Alley, they're just about to finish up with the Grim Tale of Cinderella, and that'll be followed by a whole heap of shows for uh, First Fortnight, so it's well worth checking out the program there. And then down south, the Everyman in Cork has Beauty and the Beast. In the Lime Tree in Limerick, they have Aladdin, and up north in Belfast at the Lyric, they have What the Reindeer Saw and Beauty and the Beast. So that's us. That's episode seven in the books. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime... This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Hold up. 